All right, you ready to get started on some strange stuff tonight? It'll be a little bit odd. Um, odd in the sense that it's not doctrinal. It's me tracking down aches, whispers, rumors, and feelings. So, <laughs> listen to the word of the Lord. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herders of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herders, saying, The water's ours! So he called it Essek because they contended with him. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one. So he called it Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they didn't quarrel over it. So he called it Rehoboth. Ah? Ah. Saying, now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Silence, cellular so device. So Mm-hmm. Okay. But here's the verse that for some reason gets me emotional. Can you guys guess what it is? You know what it is, don't you? And Isaac redug the wells. Why? Why would that make me so emotional? It's just wells, bro. Why? Why? You ever have the Holy Spirit stop you on a verse and say, "There's more here." You don't get uh, stale water from an old well. You get fresh water from an old well. The enemies came in and they ruined it. They buried it up. And he came back and he redug the well. There's something there. I'm not sure what it is. Why is this so meaningful to me? He digs old wells. He, he redigs old wells. He digs new wells. And finally, the Lord gives him peace. Finally, the Lord gives him space. That's a prophecy over this church, by the way, that a gentleman stood up and had me Stand, get up, get up, stand up. I'm going to prophesy over you. And I was like, oh boy. And, one of the, and he said all kinds of stuff that I was like, this guy doesn't know anything. He's wrong as they can be. Everything he was saying seemed wrong to me. He said, I see you making videos. I see you with sermons and videos. And I see a screen and I see sermons and videos, something to do with media. Well, I was going through an anti-media kick. I was going through, an, I don't want nothing but me and my Bible. I don't even want PowerPoint. I thought this guy's as dumb as they can be. Anyone who knows me, if you find me on Facebook, it's videos and videos and videos. You know, I thought, this guy is so wrong. He's out to lunch. What a, I was like, what a weirdo. What's this guy talking about? Till a few years later, I was going away for Christmas, and, and uh, I thought, I'll make a video of the sermon, and since I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to be here for Christmas, I'll make a Christmas video instead. And I was in the middle of making it, and I was editing song, music under it, and doing the various cuts, and... It was so engaging that I didn't go to bed that night. The birds started singing and the sun started coming up and I thought, I didn't go to bed. And I could have gone to bed, but I would have stayed awake thinking about what I wanted to do with the video. It, it wasn't stress. It wasn't anxiety. It was just like the creative energy was just like, I might as well get up and do this because it's on me. You know, uh, I like to work out of discipline, but unless there's inspiration, it's going to be a mess. And, and it's nice when you show up and so does the muse. It's really helpful. 
You know, I like to say it's 2% inspiration, 99 or 98% perspiration, but that 2% is a really important thing. <laughs> oh, yeesh. Well, it was there. So I'm, it's like the, the, the birds are screaming at each other because birds in the morning, they're not peaceful. <laughs> birds are, in the middle of the day, birds are like, they're singing, but in the morning, they're like screaming to each other. <laughs> ah, the angry ball of fire is returning. <laughs> like what in the world, birds? They're so annoying. So all of a sudden, I remember this prophecy about me making video, and I start weeping because I'm like, what in the world? It's not like I was obeying that guy. It had nothing to do with him. And that's the thing about a true word from the Lord. A true word from the Lord, you don't have to go and treat it like it's, unless, it's, unless it is an assignment word, which I, you know. But there's a, God has a way of weaving this complex thing together. So, Old wells and new wells. One of the things that same guy said in that word was, he said, I don't know if you all own your own building or whatever, but I see the Lord giving you space. I see the Lord giving you your own space. And I thought, hey, he's missing it again. He missed it on the, uh, he missed it on the video. He missed it. We already own the space, bro. I walked up to him afterward. I said, you missed like all of it. What did he said, did anything resonate? He was actually really humble. He goes, well, did any of it resonate? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, what percentage resonated? I said, you, you, you maybe hit 65, 70%. But the 65 to 70, it was like, you know, he could have been guessing. You know what I mean? I mean, you throw enough verses at somebody, something's gonna stick, you know? It's like plaster of Paris. But he said this thing about space, enough, like our own space. And I keep it in the back of my mind because I was wrong about him being wrong with the other stuff. And so I keep this one in the back of my mind. What does this mean for us? What is this Rehoboth? that the Lord's promised me. What does that mean? Contention and contention and contention and contention. Fighting over the wells. No, that's our well. Don't you mess with our legacy. Don't you mess with what we built. Don't you mess with our land. Don't you mess with our stuff. And suddenly, finally, he just gives way. Okay, that's fine, you have that. That's fine, you have that. Okay, that's fine, you have that. And suddenly, oh, now our shepherds and their shepherds aren't quarreling over grazing territory. We're not fighting over whose sheep get to be here anymore. You're hearing, Carolyn's hearing exactly what I'm saying and I don't even know what I'm saying. (laughs) But old wells and new wells. Okay, so when I see Isaac redigging the wells of his father, what was the well of Abraham? The well of Abraham, he was called a prophet, right? He didn't write any prophecies down. We have no record of his prophecies. So why is he called a prophet? Anybody want to just tell me right off the cuff just an answer to that? His obedience to God. His obedience to God. I mean, he was willing to sacrifice his son. This is true. This is true. How about the fact that God talked to him? Yeah. Yeah. He heard God real clear, didn't he? Seems to be something, seems to be something with his kids, too. His kids seem to hear God real clear. It's just matter of fact in his family. Oh, and then the Lord said this. And so we, oh yeah, he, since he said that, we built that altar. Oh, then we moved over here because he said to move. And he said this. Oh, so we set up these stones because he said that stuff to us. Oh yeah, he, he, he just gave me the same promises he, he gave my dad. Isaac hears real clear too. Jacob hears real clear. Joseph takes it to another level. Joseph and Daniel are my heroes. 
Oh, it takes it to another level. But Abraham was a dreamer. He saw God real clear in dreams. Symbols, same kind of a deal. So a prophet's not necessarily someone who stands up and announces, thus saith the Lord. In fact, I wish people would stop saying, thus saith the Lord. I wish they'd sit down and shut up for a while. I really do. I wish they'd say, pray and consider whether this might be the Lord. Nowadays, the Spirit's on the whole church. In fact, I trust regular Christians more than I trust prophets nowadays. Yeah, I do. I trust regular Christians, because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I trust regular Christians to have more discernment and, and a more pure prophetic ear than people who call themselves prophets and go around making money off it. I do. I really do. I trust regular Christians more to be more prophetic. Abraham is called God's friend. God's friend. You, you, if, if you're Isaac and you're, and you're redigging the wells of Abraham, you're redigging, you're redigging things maybe you never even had before. If you're Tom and you're redigging the wells of your fathers, you, you might be getting into things that your great-great-great-grandparents who you never knew had between them and God that you know nothing about, but the Lord stored something up and you're getting back to something you never had before. What's up? Hello. Howdy Sorry, I'm settling. Should we try to get you caught up? Uh, so we were getting caught up. We started with a question about Jesus' full humanity and full divinity and how much did he put off. And then we ended up talking about the value of the Old Testament, how the Old Testament still has a lot of value for Christians because it's ultimately about Jesus, even though we find a lot of its data troubling. <laughs> uh. And then what else did we say? Was that pretty much it? That was pretty much it. Okay, cool. And then we got into this thing that you and I were talking about. Isaac redigging his father's Abraham's wells. And what does that mean? And uh, obviously it has meaning in the literal. But the Holy Spirit stopped me short years ago. And I'll tell you where it hit me, guys. I feel like in my experiences of God... God has often, in the middle of an experience with him, he has often then taken me back with a, with, a long, with a wide angle lens of my life. Is that right? Yeah, wide angle lens of my life. And said, now you see this that I'm doing right here. Now you see this all the way back here 15 years ago. Now you understand. And I go, ah! There's a time on the floor right over there when some folk were praying for me and the presence of God was so heavy I could no longer stand. It was just like, oh, felt like a thousand pounds was on me and every cell was sort of just like vibrating in unison. And I was like, maybe I'd be more comfortable on my knees. So I got on my knees and then my body was like, no, we can't do this. I feel like we're going to turn into liquid and just become a puddle. So I was like, maybe, maybe it'd be more appropriate if I just prayed on my face. So I got on my face and then my body was like, no, we're definitely going to become a liquid puddle like the Terminator guy, the bad, from the silver, the, that guy that looked like the... Silver Surfer, just like, huh. they finally stopped praying. But when they finally stopped praying for me, this was all during the announcements and I missed, I was like, I'm supposed to do an announcement, but I couldn't speak or talk or move. And um, while I was on the floor, he took me back all the way to Bible college. And, uh, uh, they let me preach out there, Bible college. I'm like 19, 19 years old, something like that, 19, 20. Baby Christian, 
I know Jesus and I have a Bible and I read the Bible and I pray what I see in my Bible and I pray and I pray and I pray and then I go up, I take my Bible up and I read the Bible to the people in the church and I yell the same stuff that I prayed. And that was how I learned how to preach. You just yell at them the things you yelled at God in private. It's, it's fine. It's okay. And that, <laughs> right. it was fun. It worked out great. Yeah, it's great. The stuff that you see in the book that you get excited about, yell at the people about it. And they had me preach in a Sunday morning service in some little country church. And then in the evening, I got to preach to all the rest of the students. And I went, we were doing the singing time. And I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I think I have a blood sugar crash. Sometimes I'm hypoglycemic. Anyone else hypoglycemic? To where it's like, <gasps> and you're just shaking. You can hardly get up. Okay. Well, I thought that's what was happening to me. I, I, it was time for me to preach, and I just couldn't even stand up. And I was like, guys, I don't know what's wrong with me, but you're going to have to pray for me. Because I, I think I must be having a, a blood sugar crash. And they laid hands on me and got all Mennonite Pentecostal. You know what that means, right? It's, it's a very quiet version of being Pentecostal. Uh, but praying out loud is itself considered like, oh, they're praying out loud. The Spirit of God's moving because that's Mennonites are typically very, very staid in their spirituality. Uh, Carl Chupp's mom was foster cared by some Pentecostals. That's where she learned to pray out loud. And he's sure she got baptized in the Holy Spirit through that. Anyway, fun, fun little details. The kingdom is weird. So, but I was like, guys, I can't even stand up. What's going on? They prayed for me and instantly like, <laughs> yeah, something like that. And I got up and I preached the living crap out of that sermon. I didn't even know it, but I was prophesying over, over people. I'd walk right up to them and I'd start telling them what they were thinking and feeling and how it was wrong and how the Lord was saying the opposite. And this is what he's really, that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, they start crying. And I'm like, that's right. Get in faith. You know, I'm t telling them how loved they are and telling them who they are and how powerful they are and all this stuff. And I, I didn't know I was prophesying. I didn't know. And, and so I'm on the floor over here, however many years later that is, and the Lord takes me back and says, that wasn't blood sugar. It was the Holy Spirit just coming on you. Because like we're wired for 110. Our bodies are wired for 110 voltage. And the Holy Spirit sometimes comes at 220, right? And that's just more voltage than we're normally... You know, angels in heaven are wired for the glory. We're on earth, not quite as wired that way. And so it's just like, oh, and it gets overwhelming and it gets emotionally overwhelming. If you've ever seen anybody like on the phone when they found out something incredible or terrible and they fall down weeping or screaming or laughing and freaking out, you don't say, oh, they've lost their mind. They're getting just too emotional. It, you don't if you understand what they were just told. So when people get really like weirded out by emotion with God, I'm like, bro, you weren't listening in on the phone call. If you were listening in on the phone call, you'd think that was a completely rational response. So I'm on the floor and God takes me back and says, hey, that was me, right? Interesting thing is he, he, there's, a, there's a form of redigging the wells of what does it mean for me as a Mennonite? Mom and dad were born Amish. Both of them. Yeah. Their parents left the Amish to become Mennonite while they were little kids. I sat down with Grandpa Henry and I said, why'd y'all leave the Amish? And he said, uh, about four reasons. The first one was the legalism. The Amish had all kinds of rules that are not in the Bible. And when I asked questions about it, they would just tell me this is how we do it. 
Uh, second one would be the gospel. Uh, they never preached that you could know you're forgiven, that you could know that you're saved, that you could know that you're loved and accepted and forgiven, and that if you died right now, you'd be with him because you're already right with him right now. They, they kind of preach hope so, not know so. Hope is, is no so. Hope is a, is a confident expectation of future joy. Hope so is, well, I sure hope I've been good enough. Hope so is what that, we don't know where he's at. And I'm like, what do you mean we don't know? He was at church every time. He was never late. His favorite pastime was reading his Bible. And his favorite quote is, Jesus is amazing. But we don't know. And I was like, what, bro? What, what are you doing to these, these people? And, and, then, and then basically it's like, so strive, do better, try harder, baby. Because you just don't know when you're all going to die. It could be tonight, could be tomorrow. But grandpa said, the legalism, the lack of gospel in the Amish, this was interesting. The music. He said, Amish don't have harmony. No harmony, because harmony is apparently going to cause you to immediately uh, become addicted to crack. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, didn't write, I didn't write the rules. I'm just trying to make sense of them. Uh, there was a fourth one, and uh, I think maybe the fourth one was cars? <laughs> like like <laughs> electricity? Yeah. Yes, Lord. You know, like... <laughs> Uh, but I, that was fun. That was a fun conversation. Okay, so, so Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is when God causes his glory to pass in front of Moses. He says, let me see your face. And God's like, no, 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 no. We ain't doing that. We ain't doing that. You can't see my face and live. It's too much for It's too overwhelming, bro. Like, we kind of flip everything, don't we? We twist everything into like, like he'll kill you. If you, if you he'll, he'll, he'll kill you. No, he's not going to kill you. You can't handle the glory, is, I think, the reality. Okay, so, so he's, he causes his glory to pass before him, and then he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. you got to always read the slow, slow, so you know, slow. <laughs> he has anger, but it's very, very hard to tick him off. We actually think the opposite, because we aren't very biblical. But anyway... Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what you find a lot of. Not a lot of anger, but a lot of abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. Tom obeys God. God shows special favor to his kids for a thousand generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty but visiting the iniquity of the parents. Now this is, just brace yourselves, kids. Put your cup and your mouth guard on. Visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we fixate on that part and miss the thousand. Just an observation of mine. We still fixate on, <laughs> we still fixate on the third and fourth generation being affected by the sins of the parents. Yeah which they are, and people go, oh, that's a generational curse. And I go, is it a generational curse or is it called learned behavior? Either way, it doesn't matter. It feels the same, doesn't it? It is. If your dad's a jerk to your mom, here's a fascinating observation. Parental duties, how they're divided. Do the men sit around while the women do all the work during Thanksgiving? To the third and fourth generation, baby. <laughs> but we can get away from it. <laughs> we can. We can learn, and all kinds of things are like that. 
anger, lust, greed, fear. No, that, I mean, that's kind of in the notes. It's, it's a few points down, but that's very welcome. So, Because that's the thing I was about to say. We gravitate. Oh, we skip right over the blessing to a thousand generations. And we go, oh my goodness, three to four years, three, or three to four generations. And then when something goes wrong in a family, we go, oh, it's a generational curse. We've got to break this generational curse. We need to buy three more jugs of oil, and we're going to have to be praying and fasting for a couple of weeks to get these demons, critters out. And I'm like, oh my goodness, guys. Like later, way after this, Ezekiel, God says through Ezekiel, I will not hold the child responsible for the sins of the parents. It's in the Old Testament before Jesus even shows up on the scene. And so how much more than when Jesus shows up on the scene, if he breaks the sin of every, you know, every, he, all the curse of the law, he took all the curse of the law, which surely includes that, on himself to free us from the law. So you're, the elder who told you that is 100% correct. You don't have to pray through all this. However, here's what I have found. Sometimes it's helpful to apply what Jesus accomplished to our heart. Because even though we have no legal obligation to be under the behavior of our parents, grandparents, and so forth, it's helpful to make a conscious choice to get out of it and say, nope, not this, not this generation. It, it's, it ends here. Yeah. The addiction to alcohol ends in my generation. We're not doing it. So yeah, okay, good, good point. So here's the, my story about uh, the whole, I was, at, I was at a teaching and the guy, this guy was talking about spiritual warfare and can Christians have generational curses? And I was like, I was rolling my eyes. You know, I was rolling the, rolling the eyes of my heart, Lord. <laughs> I do a lot of that. It's, I have the spiritual gift of rolling the eyes. Of my, and I have the spiritual gift of seeing Jesus' face palm. It's like, I see it as a prophetic vision all the time. Oh, Lord. And I pray, I don't believe in the rapture, but I pray that the Lord rapture some people right out of there so that they can stop being bad witnesses. Just make an exception for them, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, soon and swoop by and take them away. <laughs> and I, so I'm sitting there going, oh, generational curses. Come on, guys, the gospel's better than this. And then he says, hold on, these aren't really curses. This is learned behavior. And, we don't, and, and you're right that Jesus is more than enough. So since he's more than enough, let's pray and walk into the more than enough. And I said, oh, I can kind of get behind that. So he prayed for the fourth generation back, your great, great, great grandparents, something like that, whatever it is. And Father, in Jesus' name, we pray mercy on them. We pray that the blood of Jesus would be sufficient to break the patterns of sin in their life. And we break them in Jesus' name and we say, uh, bring all the blessings of whatever good they had to me, but keep uh, the things that they missed from me in Jesus' name. And then we went to the next generation, and I felt something. I said, that was weird. I actually felt something come into me and something come off of me. But it, how do you quantify that stuff? And my cynicism is beginning to, you know, my is beginning to go away as I'm going, well, I prayed that, and I felt something. Then we go to the great-grandparents, prayed the same prayer, let their patterns of sin that were displeasing that didn't represent Jesus. Let those stop with them. We, we pray a blessing on them wherever they are and we receive whatever was good that we're supposed to receive. In Jesus' name, we thank you for your blood. It's more than enough. And I, go, I felt that too. We got, we got down to the parents' generation and then we prayed some, and, and all that was really good and I was like, by the time we got to where we were, there was a lump in my throat that had come from my stomach 
and I was just barely holding it together. So I went in the span of like a 15-minute prayer time from, please, generational curses my butt, this is silly, to something happening, something's happening. I do not know what happened two generations back, but I'm free of it. Uh, and then he, and then he shocked me. I didn't see this one coming. And then he said, now, Father, we ask for you to release on us the blessing of a thousand generations of faithfulness. And, and, and I kid you not, right across my eye, right across my vision, I see this word, these words, roll like ticker, like what's that called? Like digital rolling text, martyr's blood. And I went, oh my goodness. And I had been so embarrassed to be a Mennonite. So embarrassed, like, oh my word, we're the legalistic weirdos who don't fight in wars and just, I don't know, are you Amish? And like, and all of a sudden I went back to the 16th century, a group of people who got into their Bible were so filled with boldness and love for Christ, they refused to kill their enemies, they laid their lives down for their enemies, they refused to shut up about Jesus, they became missionaries, the men and the women, became missionaries preaching in the highways and the hedges that Jesus is Lord and that we're to follow him in life, and they had such power that the only way to stop him was to kill him, and even then they had to figure out how to stop him from preaching because as they were burning him at the stake, they were converting people. Their enemies said things like, we know they're heretics, but they sure do live better lives than we do. And in that moment, I said, oh, Mennonite means something different than I ever thought. It doesn't mean cowardly, weak, quiet people. It means crazy freaking martyrs who are charismatic, bold, stand on the word of God and live like Jesus and don't give a crap if they die. Huh. And the dude next to him. The dude, next, the dude next to me started calling me Mennonite. And I was like, what? The whole rest of that conference, he'd be like, praying over me, he'd be like, Mennonite. And, I, and, and it, it would have been so insulting to me before because I'm so anti-denomination, right? I'm so pro-Jesus, pro-Bible. Uh, but it's like, oh, no, wait a minute. Every tongue, tribe, nation, and language is gonna be in heaven. God's not erasing identity markers. He's not erasing cultural markers. He's celebrating them. There's not, we're not colorblind. Oh, we're so, I just want to be colorblind. Then we wouldn't even have a race problem. What? God's not making us colorblind. He's causing us to be able to celebrate the cultural differences, not tolerate them, celebrate them. And I started to not so much be embarrassed of mine. But that's me redigging some ancient wells, going, what is there a value in this tradition? I'm so tripped over what we became. And you know, when you kill a generation, when you cull the herd, you can take a wolf and turn it into a little poodle. Ew. If you carefully over generations, you see what I'm saying? Oh, we just, you can take all the bold, spirit-filled people in the group and you can kill them off until you're left with the people who hid in the woods. And all we're left with is people arguing over whether you can wear a necktie. You know, them neckties point where you're going, boy. You know, that kind of a... Um, and that was not that long ago. Just saying. What, 40, 30, 35, 40 years ago? So when we're redigging the wells, they've been covered over by some stuff. So we're sometimes going back to, the, to something we didn't even know we had. Have you ever felt homesick for a place you've never been? Have you ever felt homesick for a place you grew up in and when you go back, it's not that place anymore? 
So you're homesick for something that doesn't exist. I don't understand how salmon can find their way to the exact creek where they were born. I don't understand how birds know exactly how to migrate with no maps. Is it in their DNA? Did they get it from their parents genetically? Do they get memory genetically? How do babies know how to dance to music before anyone ever taught them how to dance? They just do. You put the music on and they go. <laughs> no one taught them. They just do it. It's in them. How do they? Is there knowledge we have? Are there memories? Are there yearnings we have for places we've never been, but our people have been? I, I, this isn't science right now. There's probably scientists that are, would chuckle. Is laughter a universal language? Smiling is. You know, nobody has to teach you to smile. There's just things that are in you. I feel like every single one of us is homesick for Eden. We find in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve are in the garden. And when they sin, then it says that God shows up in the cool of the day walking. And you kind of get the impression, at least I've always gotten the impression, that they had a standing date. That every afternoon... Every afternoon, God showed up after their work day, and uh, they would just talk. They would walk and talk. They would enjoy that. They had a regular face-to-face -face relationship with the Creator. And uh, I don't know what they talked about, probably what they did, probably just like you and I do, right? We'd, how'd your, how's your day going? What'd you do? Oh, you know, I... <laughs> and God said, what'd you name it? We're st by the way, we're still discovering new things. I just learned that this year because I was trying to figure out how many kinds of living creatures there are on planet Earth. And there's this, every year there's this thing where uh, all over the world, little teams of people go out to find new insects, new, new forms of life that, well, they're not new, but we haven't classified them. We haven't identified them yet. And they're not like in the rainforests of Brazil. They're in Australia. They're in Tennessee. So sometimes you see, you, know, like you see a weird creature, a weird insect in your backyard. You're laying in the backyard and you see this little thing and you're like, well, I know what a wasp is. I know what a bee is. I know what an ant is. I know what an aphid is. I know what a grasshopper is. I know what it's, I, what the heck are you? <laughs> you're kidding me. That's your impulse? My first impulse is to get a camera and get as close to it as possible. <laughs> you guys, you're, you're, you're wrong. Oh man. That... <laughs> so one day we were, I was digging in the, in, the, in the dirt in the backyard, making some flower beds for my wife. And I thought I stepped on a piece of broken glass. I mean, I thought it jammed right up underneath my big toe and stabbed me. And you know what? If you're like me, if you injure yourself, the number one rule of injuring yourself is don't look at it. Right? Right? I don't care if my toe is broken. We'll find out later. Later. <laughs> Nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. Nothing is wrong. Everything's fine. Crap. Crappity crap. Right? <laughs> I sit down and I'm like, okay, I'm going to look at it because I'm going to have to pull this big piece of glass out. I look at it and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's stabbed into me. And I'm sure it's just a brown piece of broken bottle. And then I go to pull it out and it is the biggest beetle. I've ever seen in Delaware, and it is like, Hurrah! 
<laughs> pinching me as hard as it can in the crotch of my big toe. And just, I mean, I have a well, I, I was like, here we go. And I flicked it as hard as I can flick and it got him off. But I was like, huge. They're huge. That's way off topic. Homesick for Eden. Uh, here's a clue. Paul says in Romans 14, 17 that the kingdom of God, the place where God dwells, the kingdom of God consists in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. He's 100%, 100% made us clean, right? They were naked and unashamed because they had no consciousness of sin. They weren't sin aware. They were completely innocent in their own eyes. They were innocent. They were unaware of their own whatever. They were, that's righteousness, where sin consciousness is taken out of the picture. Righteousness, peace. There were no worries. I'm not just talking about peace with God, which means friendship with God. Being at war with God means you're an enemy of God. Being at peace with God means you have peace with right, your friends. You're the friends of God. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about, see if you can feel this in your body as I give this definition. The deep relaxation of all the muscles from your head to your toe. The deep Not peace with God, the peace of God. Righteousness. You're, you're not sin conscious. You're, it's just fellowship. It's just fellowship. No shame, no guilt, free, clean. You're not, you're not even self-aware. You're not even self-conscious. You know how self-conscious we are in every interaction with every human? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Oh, my word, that was an awkward silence. That's a form of a lack of righteousness. That's a form of an awareness of my nudity and my look and how do I look and appear, they were completely, you know, like a little kid. I always have to, oh no, she's in the front yard naked again. Quick, grab her before the neighbors see her. <laughs> Get back in the house. Cause they're little, they don't know yet. They haven't developed. They haven't developed that ego that's so self-centered that they even perceive the world like that. They don't run around going, I wonder if you like me. Do you like me? No, righteous, that's righteousness. Peace, oh, we're just, there's friendship and, we're, and, we're, and it, there's a, such a trust and joy in the Holy Ghost. Adam and Eve, we're happy. God is the happiest being that ever existed. He's the happiest being that ever will exist. Jesus in Hebrews chapter one, it says, God has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond all your contemporaries. No one was happier than Jesus, which is why sinners wanted to hang out with him, Luke 1, Luke 15, 1, sorry. Right? Righteousness, peace, and joy. This is what the kingdom's like. Why? Because this is what it was like in Eden. This is what it's like in heaven. Guys, this is what it's like right now in the gospel. And this is why I don't listen to certain preachers, no matter how accurately they preach. Because I'm not looking to see how accurately you preach. Jesus didn't tell me to see how accurately you preach or prophesy. He told me to look at your fruit. I don't care if you're doing miracles. But Lord, didn't we heal in your name and didn't we prophesy in your name? Get away from me, I don't know you. Fruit, righteousness, peace, and joy. Get away from angry, grumpy preachers. Get away from them. Mute, done, change the channel. There's some super grumpy, angry people. They're fueled by anger. They get in the pulpit and you can see there's anger. Oh boy, I'm gonna be so brave. I'm gonna talk about them liberals or whoever they are talking about that day. It's going to be somebody else, and it's not going to be about the beauty of God. It's not going to be the beauty of God. It's going to be the ugliness of sin and what's wrong with the world and how the church needs to take a stand. Oh, and then they'll do one of these. 
do a jump and stomp real hard. I got no problem with jumping and stomping and screaming. But righteousness, peace, and joy. Because you know why? You go, it smells like grandma's house in here. You know the smell of grandma's house. I don't know why grandma's house has a smell. But righteousness, peace, and joy smells like Eden. Oh, it's getting back to our roots. It's getting back to something we remember like the birds know how to migrate, like, like the fish know how to get back to where they're from. I don't know why this whole conversation makes me so emotional, but it does. Then there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah. I'm, I'm actually trying to finish up here. Isaiah 61. Oh boy, here it is. Isaiah 61.4. Well, he talks about the spirit of the sovereign Lord coming upon me because the Lord's anointed me to preach good news. Good news to the oppressed. Bind up the brokenhearted. That means heal the brokenhearted. Liberty to captives, release to prisoners. It's everything Jesus teaches in Luke chapter four in his very first sermon. This is the chapter of the Bible Jesus turned to in the scroll on his first sermon ever, Isaiah 61. Then verse four, it says that these people, well, I'll go up to verse three. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Talking about roots, right? Oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord to display his glory. Verse four. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, I don't know why, but that verse, when I pray over people sometime over the years, I could name names right now. There's people that I've prayed that over where I'm praying over and all of a sudden I realize something multi-generational, something very deep, something very old is going on and the Lord's setting it right, right now. The other day when I was weeping in here, just so sad about the state of the church, so sad about the state of the church in, in, in the United States especially and feeling really hopeless. Will we get it? Will we get it? feel like we're just so far from... Loving the people God loves, the way God loves. And, and I'm just, just, I was so brokenhearted. And he took me to Acts 15, and my eyes landed here, and, and, and he made it real to me. After this, I'll return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. And from its ruins, I will rebuild it. I will set it up so that all other peoples might seek the Lord, even the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. God was giving me a personal promise to him. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fix this. And it was the same thing. That passage was being quoted when the church was struggling. Do we accept these outsiders in or not? The Gentiles, do we, it's the Acts 15, Jerusalem counselor. Do we, do, we, do we accept these Gentiles? And the answer is yes. And in doing so, it's God setting your priorities right again. The Pharisees and the scribes and the selfishness and the emptiness and just laws and judgment. And Jesus says, go and learn the meaning of this. I want mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I am so much more concerned with you learning how to love than you being absolutely careful to make sure you get it all right and do it all right. Love, get the, get the big thing the big thing. You're obsessed on the little things while missing the big things, right? Jesus is hanging out with sinners and the Pharisees, the church leaders, they're mad at him. That's what he tells them. 
He says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. And go and learn the meaning of this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay. Restoring David's fallen tent. Rebuilding the ancient ruins. And I don't know what the ancient ruins are in your life or your family or, or your story, but I know that when the Holy Spirit comes home and we start to walk with Jesus, I know that he comes to rebuild some stuff. He comes to put some stuff back together that's been broken as long as we can remember. We might never even seen what this is supposed to look like. I don't even know what it's supposed to look like to wake up in the morning with hope, joy, and peace. I don't even know what it looks like to just forgive someone when they sin against me and not even become offended. I don't even, you know what I mean? We, we don't have many models for what does it look like to not let sin against you create sin in you so that now you get stuck and that becomes your story for the rest of your life. And that becomes the story you tell everyone around you when they say, how are you, how are you doing? All you have is a story about who hurt you lately. And, and, but we were made for so much more. We were made for so, we were made, we were, it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. Like that's exactly why Jesus died so that what, not just the sins I committed, but the sins committed against me, his image is back inside me. I no longer exist for you to love me, but I exist to bear the image of love for you because all my needs are already met in the cross. But, and, but the how does that work out in daily life? The Holy Spirit's gonna have to teach each one of us. What does this look like to rebuild these ancient ruins? Okay, you get it. All right, I'm, I'm gonna finish with this story, the same story that I told you about the old Pentecostal man at the, at the revival service. So old school Pentecostal revival, right? Annual revival, they have the, they put up a tent, put down the wood chips, and they have in preachers, and they have tons of singing. They sing until you wish they weren't singing. And they preach, preach, preach. And usually it's against sin and, and for righteousness and for the Holy Spirit to come. And people are seeking God and they need a fresh touch. And people are pleading for the souls of their cousins and their family members and all that kind of stuff. And some people are pleading for their own soul. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Because Pentecostalism is an experience-based, it's, it's an experience-driven uh, form of the faith, which is why I like it, to be honest with you. And they're having their meeting and... God shows up, not just loud music, not just emotion, not just intensity, but God. And you know what I'm talking about, right? The invisible mist that enters the room. When I walked into Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship in 1997 or eight, walked into the back of these double doors, thousand or so people, maybe more than that, maybe 2000, people are in this room. They'd been singing to Jesus for hours. You could tell. We walked in and it felt like I walked into a sauna. <sighs> Hit me. And I said, oh, okay, I know you. You're that thing that comes when I turn my light off at night at the end of a long work day. I turn all my lights off and I put my candle on and I look at the stars and I talk. I just talk, just talk to God. And I'm real quiet and calm. And then slowly, as I just sit there with my attention on God, the invisible mist comes. Every night, since I got saved till now, all it takes is a moment, and he comes. My emotions can be jacked up, left, right. My heart can be messed up. My beliefs can be messed up. My attitudes can be messed up. But that's consistent. So I walk in, and it's that invisible mist, but heavy. And I go, Okay, well, like that at this meeting. And, and it's like waves start to 
move across the room. Weeping. Some people quietly weeping. Other people praying out loud, but quietly. They're not trying to... Different people, different responses as this invisible mist is just moving, hovering. And the people are kind of just swaying like this. And they're waiting. And this old Pentecostal preacher who's like blown his vocal cords out through years of screaming at the top of his lungs about Jesus in a raspy, quiet voice. He tries the best he can to, to be just, I don't think he had a mic, just, just yells over the, you know, over. And there's enough of a holy hush they can hear him. And he calls them back to their roots. He asks them to remember He says, guys, we've drifted. Don't you remember? Don't you remember? He says, don't you remember how we used to help the poor? How we used to clothe the needy? How we used to have nothing except our faith in God and God provided. And not just enough for us, but enough to share. Don't you remember? We took took people into our homes. And we've gotten away from our roots. And the whole place just kind of fell under a a weeping. And the interesting thing, it it wasn't a man screaming at them that they all needed to repent because they're sinners. It wasn't a fear of hell. It was the beauty. It was the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus' heart, and the beauty of a sacrificial life lived in harmony with that heart. I've seen people cry for joy like they won the lottery as they're called to do after-school ministry in the inner city to at-risk, low-income kids whose behaviors are going to be difficult to handle. And they're crying for joy like they won the lottery. And I thought, man, that's only in the kingdom. That was the same prophet. Called those people out, told them where they lived, told them details you can't know. Matt Rowan was a huge skeptic, so Matty went and like got in the guy's face and was interrogating him. Is this bullcrap or not? Is this real or not? Because he was a big, cynical, right? And all it all checked out, and they actually, you could get that guy's contact information from Matty Rowan. I'm sure he still has it. And that couple, the, the really tall guy and the really skinny little wife, but <laughs> so funny. Okay. They were just weeping. Because they felt like they won the lottery. I get to give my life to people who might never appreciate it. Amazing. What an opportunity. Because it's the beauty of Jesus' heart. So, and I'm thinking, who all's in this crowd in this Pentecostal room? By the way, that wasn't at the same meeting. I'm cross-referencing. I'm so ADD. Do you think there were kids at this meeting with the old man? Praying all this stuff? Kids who had no memory of this because they weren't even born yet? It's possible for you to be homesick for a home you never lived in and rediscover roots that you've never actually known. And I don't know what that means for you, but I know that God's been working in your families. Whoever you are, God's been working in your family. God's been working in your families. There's the Holy Spirit. There's no one on earth the Holy Spirit's not working in. No one. The missionary's never the first person to make contact. Never. We've sent missionaries. Showed up with Bibles, and they go, 
Oh, finally, the pale-skinned people with the words of God on their banana leaves. About time, we've been waiting on you for like 10 generations. And we go, huh? Because God's already been talking. Isn't that interesting? All right, let's pray. God, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we proclaim the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus that frees us from all the curse of the law and all the consequences of sin. You took them on and you give us your infinite blessing instead. And God, we, pray, we, we proclaim, I proclaim over every single one in this place right now, freedom, liberty from the patterns of the past four generations. In Jesus' name, liberty. And God, I pray you would release. Uh, do I have, if you don't want me to put my fingers on your top of your head real quick, please just let me know when I get near you. Release the blessing of a thousand generations of faithfulness in Jesus' name. Release the blessing, God, of a thousand generations. Release the blessing, Father, of a thousand generations. Release the blessing, Father, of a thousand generations of faithfulness. In Jesus' name, release the blessing of a thousand generations of faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Release the blessing of a thousand generations, God. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would allow us to redig ancient wells, that we would drink deeply of who you are. Take us back, God, to the kind of righteousness, peace, and joy where we can, where we can in some sense, participate in the home we've always longed for, of knowing you, walking with you. And God, yet we know that in this world, we are sojourners, we're refugees, we're aliens, we're foreigners, that this is not our home. And so we do yearn for the fullness of your kingdom, for the consummation of your kingdom. But in this world, God, we've got one foot in the kingdom and one foot, foot on this earth. We bless you, God. Lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know better than to think that we've exhausted this topic. This is a very brief introduction and nothing more.